Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through verses 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah uh, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. This past Wednesday, the night before Thanksgiving, I was with my wife and my wife's parents and my wife's sister Katie and Katie's husband Dan. We had gotten all the children put to bed and normally while we're doing children things while they are awake, we finally had some time to do adult things and so we played a game that was for adults. My wife and I picked it up the night before on a whim and brought it to this family gathering and it was an incredibly fun game. Uh, the way this game worked is uh, you went around a circle, and when it was your turn, you would draw a card, and you would read that card, and on that card there was a prompt. Uh, for example, what is my life motto? Or what do I see when I look in the mirror? Or what do I have an excess of? Uh, some things are big and deep. Some things are uh, fairly light and insubstantial. But it, when it was your turn, you would then write down what you would actually say in response to that prompt. And everyone around the table would also write what they think you would say, not what they would say, but what you would say about that prompt. And then all the answers are collected and you would read all of them. And everyone else has to guess which one is yours, which one was your actual answer. And as the night went on, well, this became a funnier and funnier game uh, because of a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, we all knew each other really, really well, so we could say some clever things about one another from a really deep knowledge, and also because we loved one another. We weren't cutting each other down. We were having a lot of fun enjoying uh, the shared history that we had together. 
You see, over the years, my wife and I are celebrating our 13th year of marriage at the end of this year here, and we were the second of the two siblings to get married. Uh, So we've known each other all for about 15 years in total, and through that time, we've gotten to know one another's strengths and one another's weaknesses. We've known one another's quirks and their virtues. Uh, We've known some of the challenges and the setbacks that we faced, as well as some of the failures and successes. We know each other deeply, and through all of this, we've grown to love one another as a family, sometimes in spite of those things and sometimes because of those things. And so as we were all sharing these answers and trying to guess and get in the heads of one another, uh, someone mentioned afterwards, you know, this is a game you couldn't really play with strangers as as an icebreaker. You have to know the other people deeply. and, And from this, there was just this wonderful time of joy. We were just roaring at times so loudly that our children had to come and tell us to pipe down because they were trying to sleep. Usually it works the other way. As parents, we tell the children to go to sleep, but this time it was the adults who were out of control and out of hand. Well, as we come to the Gospel of Matthew... Matthew wants to give us this kind of a deep knowledge of Jesus, a knowledge not of Jesus' quirks, uh, but of Jesus' some of the things that may surprise us. Certainly, we're going to see the strengths of Jesus. We're going to see certainly his oppositions and all the ways that people are attacking him, and yet we won't see his failures. We will see his ultimate successes. Matthew wants to introduce us to this person Jesus, who is called the Christ. And he wants to do this so that we might love him. That through this deep knowledge of who Jesus is, that we might grow to trust him and to love him as the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. But what's interesting here in the passage that Matthew begins his gospel on, not a choice any of us would make, probably if we were writing the life of Jesus, to start with a genealogy, he recognizes that the story of Jesus begins far before Jesus is born into this world. That you can't understand the history of Jesus, the story of Jesus, without understanding the story that precedes him, the story that leads up to him. And so we have here a recitation and a reminder of virtually the entire Old Testament from about Genesis 12 or 11 even on through the end of it and even into the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament that this is some of the only records we have in the Bible. And we have all of this because what Matthew was showing us is that Jesus did not come into the world a moment too soon or a moment too late. He came at the perfect time. Our big idea then is that it is in the fullness of time that God sent forth His Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. That's from Galatians 4 verse 4, but it summarizes what Matthew is getting at in this opening genealogy to his gospel. So this morning, three parts to studying this passage. First of all, the renewal of the covenant, the renewal of the covenant. Second, the rightful king, the rightful king. And then third, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Israel. So we'll start with the renewal of the covenant, and this will take us from verse 1 uh, through the first part of verse 6. Now, again, if we were writing the story of Jesus, we probably wouldn't start with a genealogy. And so we have to ask, why does Matthew begin his gospel of Jesus with a genealogy? And perhaps the better question is, why does the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to start right here with a genealogy? 
Well, the opening words of verse 1 tell us a big part of why Matthew starts in this way. Look at those words, the book of the genealogy, the book of the genealogy. Now, this is reflecting two words in the original Greek, book and genealogy, but they're written in such a way where this is the right way to translate it, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about this word genealogy is this is the word that we get our word Genesis from, uh, like the, first, the name of the first book of the Bible. And there's a reason for that, because this word shows up throughout the entire book of Genesis in the Greek translation of it. Uh, if you remember during our study of, of the book of Genesis, I tried to draw attention to every time we read, these are the generations of so-and-so. You see, these are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Noah, these are the generations of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Esau and Jacob. Every time you would read about the generations of someone, you knew you were going to hear their family history extending beyond them. And we read about the book of the generations, the book of the genealogy, however you want to translate this, uh, twice in Genesis. In Genesis 2 verse 4 and 5 verse 1, those two words, book and Genesis, show up together. So right from the beginning, Matthew is giving us an echo from the first book of the Bible, from the book of Genesis. Now, this isn't the only gospel where that happens. You're probably familiar with the fact that the fourth gospel, this is the first gospel, the last gospel, the gospel of John, also begins with an echo of the book of Genesis. John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's a clear echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So both in John and, and here in Matthew, right from the outset, we are given an echo, a reminder of Genesis. Well, why is this? It's because what Matthew wants us to pay attention to is that this is not just sort of a family history that you might have buried in your own house somewhere. If you've done your, your, your genealogy somewhere, if you have that buried somewhere, this is an incredibly important history. This is a sacred history. And it's a sacred history of a new beginning, a new genesis. This is a momentous time in history. And Matthew wants us to make no mistake, this is as, if, as important, if not more important, than the original story in Genesis of when God created the heavens and the earth. And particularly where Matthew wants us to see in the genealogy that he's giving is that the coming of Jesus comes as the fulfillment of every promise that God made to His people in the Old Testament. So Matthew shines a spotlight, we might say, on three factors of how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of the expectations based on the promises that God's people received from their Lord. And look at what Matthew writes in verse 1. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is the Christ is the first part of this. Probably most of us, the first time we hear the name Jesus Christ, we think that Christ is Jesus' last name. I remember as a child thinking this. But in fact, Christ is not a name, it is a title. Uh, Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. To speak of God's anointed one means to speak of a mediator who will go between God and His people. And while we saw many lowercase m messiahs in the Old Testament who were mediating between God and His people, we saw prophets and priests and kings, Jesus is coming as the Christ, as the mediator between God and men. 
So first we see that Jesus is the Christ. Second, Matthew wants us to know that He is the Son of David. Now, if you look at all of the names in this list, you might wonder what led Matthew to pick out one of these to mention. Well, David was the recipient of a particular covenant promise that God made. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 or the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17. But God made a covenant with David, promising to David that David would never lack one of his descendants to sit on the throne of Israel. Ever after, David would have one of his offspring, one of his children, one of his seed to sit on the throne of Israel. And Matthew is saying, this is the rightful king. But then third, we read that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Again, one in the long list of these names. How does he pick Abraham? Well, Abraham is a reminder of the covenant promises. Out of all the world, God chose Abraham as the one man through whom God would bless all the families of the earth. God told Abraham, I will bless your family, and it will be through your family, through your offspring, through which I will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And so these are the three parts, that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the son of David, and that He is the son of Abraham, that Matthew wants us to be aware of right as we start this genealogy. And so as we get into verse 2, uh, let me tell you there are a couple of uh, general things about how this genealogy works. Uh, the first is that you may know there's another genealogy uh, of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. There are some differences there. Um, I don't have time to go into all of those. There's more information in my sermon notes. I'd encourage you to read through those. It talks about the differences between the genealogies in Luke and Matthew. But what I want to direct your attention to what's happening here is the phrase, the father of. So Abraham was the father of, and Isaac the father of, and Jacob the father of, and on and on and on. Um, the, the word here, it's hard to translate into words that we use currently in English. Probably the best translation is if you're reading from the King James Version is begat. And Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. But we don't use that word very often, and there isn't a really good modern equivalent. But the idea gets at the active biological paternity of the father. Talking about the father's act in begetting the next generation. And what's important for us to think about is that this word is also related to that word for Genesis. So the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, verse 1, the, the begetting of Jesus Christ, and now we have all the begetting that happened before Jesus was begotten, as we'll read about in verse 16. But we have here sort of a wall of begats, begat, 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 begat. There's this line and this chain that we're going to see is going somewhere. But now let's get into this first section, what's happening here in verses 2 through the first part of 6. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're going to find no surprises in this list of fathers, those doing the begetting those begatting their children after them. This genealogy of the fathers shows up at several points in the Old Testament. But what's a surprise in this passage are the mothers who were listed. Not the fathers, but the mothers who were listed. Now, there are some notable exclusions. For example, we don't read about Abraham's wife, Sarah. We don't read about Isaac's wife, Rebecca. We don't read about Jacob's wives, uh, Rachel or Leah. Instead, we read about, in verse 3, Tamar. Tamar, you may remember from our Genesis series in Genesis 38, seduced Judah 
the father of her dead husband in order to have a child through her father because her father would not give her another husband from one of his remaining surviving children. It was a scandalous time when Judah hired whom he thought was a prostitute, and from that came union, came Perez and, um, and Zerah. The next mother we have is Rahab in verse 5. Rahab is also not a very savory figure in some ways. We meet Rahab when she is a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. But she believes in the God of Israel, and she gives shelter to the Israelite spies when they're spying out the city of Jericho, and so she and her family is saved. Well, then we come to Ruth in verse 5. If you know the story of Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite woman, a Moabitess. Well, the Old Testament forbid it for Moabites to enter into the assembly of the Lord. And then if we peek ahead beyond this section into verse 6, we also read about Bathsheba. Although she's not named, she is the wife of Uriah. And again, there's a scandal there because David stole the wife of one of his closest friends, Uriah. And then to cover up the pregnancy, he murdered her husband so that he could take her as a wife so that no one would know what had happened. It was a wicked thing in the sight of the Lord. We have four scandalous in various ways mothers. Now, why is this? Well, a couple of different things are going on. The first is that Matthew is preparing us for the next story that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week when we come upon another scandalous mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Although in Mary's case, it's not a deserved scandal. It's a seeming scandal, but not a scandal in reality, because Mary is not pregnant by the work of any human father, but by the conception that is brought upon her through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew is preparing us for that. But what we are also seeing is a reminder of the scarred and tattered and tawdry past from which Jesus comes. This is not a pure line of succession, of perfect, one perfection, uh, perfection of generations to the next. This is a scandalous past, which means it's going to be all the more glorious when Jesus arises from this history to save these broken people who uh, were his ancestors, as well as broken people like you and me. This first section then begins with a declaration of the beginning, the genesis of Jesus, who's the Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And we get the first part of this genealogy, tracing Abraham all the way to David. We're reminded that part of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ is that he is coming to renew God's covenant, to fulfill God's promises, especially the promises to bless the whole world through Abraham's offspring. We see that part of Jesus' genealogy traces all the way back to Abraham. We're reading about a new beginning, a new genesis leading to blessing, peace, righteousness, justice, and prosperity. But the next question that Matthew has to tackle is, can this really come from Jesus? Can all of the fulfillments of God's promises and all of these blessings really come through Jesus? And one of the most important issues is, is he the rightful king? Is he the rightful king in the line of David to sit on the throne of David? And so this brings us to our second section about the rightful king, that Jesus is the rightful king in the second half of verse 6 all the way through verse 11. We start this genealogy where we left off with David. Now, as we start the second section, we should remind ourselves that David had many wives, and from these wives, he had many children. You can read about these wives and their children in a few different passages. 
2 Samuel 3, verses 2 through 5, 2 Samuel 5, verses 13 through 14, and 1 Chronicles 3, verses 1 through 3. What Matthew is doing here is not to simply demonstrate that Jesus is a descendant. He's not having Jesus run one of those biological paternity tests to sort of figure out who his ancestry might be. He's demonstrating much more than this, that Jesus comes from the royal line of David, that he is the rightful heir to succeed the throne of David. And so in verses 6b through 11, we are reading about a stretch of time through the entire history of the Davidic dynasty until the Babylonian exile. But what we should know is that Matthew does skip a couple of generations. I won't tell you which ones right now. There's more information in the sermon notes. Uh, But Matthew skips a number of generations along the way. Why does he do this? Well, it's important. He's not simply recording census data. He is trying to give us a theological vision of the fullness of time in which Jesus has come. Now, we'll return to that in the next section, but I'm just explaining to you why he skips a couple of kings along the way. That doesn't um, falsify what he's saying, this idea of begetting, so-and-so begat so-and-so, doesn't need to refer to someone's direct son. It can refer to someone down the lineage. What Matthew is showing here is that just as the period from Abraham to David is a full period of time, so this period of Davidic kings is full. And Jesus is the rightful king in the royal line of David. That's what's happening here in the second section. Now, several years ago, um, I was waiting for a flight to take off from uh, an airport, the Burbank Airport. And as I was sitting there, I looked over and I saw a man spread out a number of materials that he clearly just acquired. And I looked at them and they were all different religious kinds of materials. And, And there was some weird stuff in there. It spanned the gamut of all kinds of religions. And so, out of curiosity, I said, hey, out of curiosity, what's going on here? What are your interests in all these wide, different religions? And he explained to me that he was a Jewish rabbi, uh, actually um, just uh, near here in, in Iowa, if I remember correctly. He explained to me that he was a Jewish rabbi who was interested in lots of different world religions, and this was just part of his collection of trying to collect these materials. Well, that was an interesting opening, so I said, well, out of curiosity, if you're interested in world religions... What stops you from believing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah? You're a Jewish rabbi, you know the Old Testament. What stops you from believing that Jesus is the Messiah? His answer was not what I expected. He said, well, Jesus isn't the son of David. And I was surprised by this. And he said, well, yeah, he's, he's not the son of David. We all know he's not the son of David. And I said, well, let me open the Bible, and we open to Matthew chapter 1. I took him to the very first verse of the New Testament, where one of the very first things that Matthew says is that he is the son of David. You might not be interested in this, but Jews are interested in this. And that was the first time in his entire life that he had heard that Jesus actually claimed to be the son of David. He thought that was entirely off the table, and that was the very first objection he had to believing that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I show you that for two reasons. First of all, you never know what might come from these airport conversations. We looked at Ecclesiastes, uh, you never know, a couple weeks ago. You never know what God is going to do with His Word. To my knowledge, this man still does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you never know what God will do when you open up His Word and when God's Word is allowed to take down the barriers in people's minds from putting their faith in Jesus the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. But the second reason I bring that up is to tell you that Jews take 
Jesus' status as the son of David very seriously. The son of David is the Messiah that they are waiting for. And so Matthew is including this information for these exact evangelistic conversations. If you were giving an evangelistic tract to someone, it would probably not be a list of the genealogy leading up to Jesus. But for Jews, that is precisely the information that they are looking for in order to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus then is not merely a descendant of David. But again, Matthew is really showing us that this is the Davidic king in the official legal royal line descending from David. But for the Jews who were living in Jesus' day, there was another major challenge. And I'd express it like this. Okay, so maybe Jesus can uh, trace his ancestry back to David and even the Davidic line. But so what? What does that actually do for us now? You remember the Jews at this point in time were under the subjugation of the Romans. Before that had been the Greeks. Before that had been the Median Persian Empire. And before that led to the Babylonian deportation that we read about in verses 11 and 12. So what if Jesus can trace his lineage back to the Davidic line? You know, if you were to discover that you were a descendant of Genghis Khan, um, the way that Genghis Khan carried out his conquests It is estimated that today one in 200 men are direct descendants of Genghis Khan. He was that kind of a brutal um, conqueror. Or Julius Caesar, he had descendants, but no one knows quite who they are today. Let's say you were able to prove it, that you are a descendant of Julius Caesar. And as for Alexander the Great, um, as far as we know, his line was completely extinguished. But let's even say that you find a, a previously unknown son of Alexander the Great and you are descended from him, even if you could prove DNA biological paternity, you couldn't resurrect the Greek Empire. You couldn't resurrect the Roman Empire or the Mongolian Empire. The fact that you can trace your lineage from them means nothing unless you can do something about it. Jesus' kingship means nothing if he is just one more in the line of the people who are after the deportation from Babylon who are still under subjection to these Roman conquerors and oppressors. For Jesus' kingship to mean anything, he must restore the kingdom of Israel. And that gets to the third section, the restoration of Israel. The first three names in this third section, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, these are recorded elsewhere in the Bible, in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. But these other names after them are recorded only here. So we don't know if Matthew skipped generations. So why then is this section here? One of the interesting things is this is putting this time period from the deportation to Babylon all the way to the time when Jesus was born on an equal footing with the time of the Davidic dynasty and also on an equal footing with the time from Abraham to David. These time periods are on equal footing because what we are seeing here is that Matthew is showing that theologically one of the big things that Jesus is doing is to restore the king of Israel. Not just someone who can trace his paternity to the royal line. He is showing that Jesus is restoring the kingdom. But one of the interesting things that happens here, the decisive things that happens in this entire genealogy, again, this this has been just a wall of begats. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. But all of that changes in verse 16. When we read, Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary. Now, that's odd. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, this is that same verb 
the verb from which we get our word Genesis, but it's not in that active, paternal, biological father kind of a sense. It's actually in a passive sense and doesn't describe Joseph's involvement at all. It only speaks of Mary, of Mary of whom Jesus was born. What we are reading here is what um, scholars call a, a divine passive. We're reading not about the active work of a human being to bring something about. We're reading about something that happens to Mary and something that God does to bring about God's redemption of His Son into the world. Now, imagine this is your first time reading through this genealogy. Imagine that you were a Jew who was used to reading this kind of genealogy and read it with great interest, begat, 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 and then suddenly the line is broken at Joseph, and you read that Joseph is apparently the legal father of Jesus, but he's not the biological father. That would raise questions. Well, you'll have to wait till the next section to find the decisive answer to those questions, but we are reading about the fact that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph but that Mary, his mother, was a virgin who conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew is preparing us for that story in the way that he structures his genealogy, and it's for this reason that Jesus is called Christ in verse 16. But then in verse 17, we get to perhaps the most puzzling part of this story. We read about these 14 generations, that the first section was 14 generations, the second section was 14 generations, and the third section is 14 generations. Now, I'll be very clear. You should check my sermon notes. The counting is difficult in this. Uh, I'm not a very good counter, but you will notice if you count up the different names and the generations, uh, they are count, Matthew is counting in different ways in some of these different sections. I won't go through the details here. You can read the sermon notes on this. But the question is, why does Matthew want to make a big deal of this at all? Why is this 14 such a big issue? Well, as we see often in the Bible, numbers are not merely mathematics kinds of tools. Numbers don't only have mathematical significance. Numbers very often have theological significance. Now, when we think about numbers, we're typically talking about them in a mathematical sense. One plus one equals two. But even for us, sometimes numbers go beyond their mathematical meaning. I've used this illustration in the past. It's the best I can think of. But when you speak of 7-Eleven, the convenience store, you are describing something very different than 9-11. There's one digit difference in that number, but those numbers have tremendously different significance. Numbers are not merely mathematical. They sometimes have significance beyond this. And here what Matthew is saying is there is a significance to the fact that these are 14 generations that he wants to highlight in each section of the genealogy. What's going on here? One solution is uh, what's called a gematria. Um, gematria, uh, you can uh, bring that up a, at uh, parties in the future. Um, a gematria has something to do with um, Hebrew numerology. So in Hebrew, letters are also used as numbers. And the particular name in question is David. And in Hebrew also, you just spell with consonants. The, the vowels are sort of marked above and below the consonants. So three consonants, D, V, and D. D is the number four, V is the number six, and then v, uh, D again, four plus six plus four equals 14. And so the argument is there's a, a Hebrew numerology wordplay off of David's name to get at the significance of 14 in each generation to really underscore the kingship, the Davidic kingship of Jesus. 
A lot of people think that I find that hard to follow and hard to agree with, especially when you consider that Matthew was written in Greek and somehow there's a Hebrew wordplay going on that people are supposed to understand. I think what's a much better explanation for this is that this is getting at the fullness and the completeness of each generation. So sometimes numbers work like this in the Bible. You have to sort of divide them out, which if we're in division, we're already stretching my mathematical capabilities to the limit, but stick with me. We have three sets here of 14. Three sets of 14. Now, 14 is the number seven twice over. Seven is a number that is very often used in the Bible to express completeness, the the creation days. You don't have to get very far in the Bible to see that seven is a number of completion. And you have in each section not only seven, but seven twice over. So this is a, a very complete, very full generation. But you have this three times. Three is going to be an incredibly important number in Matthew's gospel. We are going to see the three uh, names of the Trinity um, highlighted in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Think at the very end of Matthew when Jesus instructs us to baptize in the singular name, one name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's one name, but there are three names that are associated with this one name because God is one God who exists as three persons. Jesus also is going to, to lay in the grave for three days. Three is going to symbolize some kind of completion. And so we have three sets of seven twice over. What we are seeing here is the complete fullness of this entire history leading up to Jesus. Jesus did not come one second too early or one second too late. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. But what's remarkable to think about is the contrast between the fullness of time to bring Jesus into the world and what parents are trying to do in the the fullness of time when their own children leave the house. So when we're raising our children, I'm trying my hardest to get my children to a place of independence where they will survive when they leave the house. Now, when they are young, uh, there's a lot to do. Hopefully, as they get older, there's less to do because they learn to do some of these things. And when they go off into the world, they will be competent and equipped to live independently from their parents. But it's the exact opposite thing happening here. As we remember, each generation already from the beginning, it was filled with scandal. In the second section, it leads up to the Babylonian deportation. In the third section, if you know anything of the time after Israel comes back from Babylonian captivity, you know their problems weren't fixed. There was still sin. There was still corruption. There was still division. And there was still a hardness of heart to God's word. In each section, the entire time, God's people are demonstrating again and again and again that they can't live independently from God. And it's at this moment, when they are at the the bottom of the the, the depths of their misery and suffering under Roman oppression, it's at this moment in the fullness of time that God sends forth His Son. He was never training His people to live without Him. He was proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that they can't live without Him. And at precisely that moment, God came near to them to establish His connection, to confirm His covenant to take his throne as the rightful king and restore the kingdom of Israel. What do we do with a genealogy? There's not a whole lot of clear do this and do that kind of in this statement, so we have to understand what Matthew is doing here. And I'd summarize the application this way. Believe in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the 
the son of Abraham. Again, if we were writing this biography, we probably wouldn't start with a genealogy. But what we have here is crucial to Matthew's presentation to give us that deep knowledge of Jesus so that we can love him and trust him with great joy. The Spirit of God wants us to have this information. And right from the beginning, Matthew is weaving together this genealogy in such a way to bring out the key themes of this gospel. So I would say there are three themes that we're seeing right from the beginning here. The first is this. This is a gospel about Scripture fulfillment. We are told right from the beginning in verse 1 that this is a new book of Genesis. This is the Genesis, the story that's leading to Jesus, the new beginning, the beginning of the new creation of God. We are reading that he has come to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham in the beginning. One commentator, Grant Osborne, writes, this first gospel, Matthew, contains 60 quotations from the Old Testament and numerous allusions and echoes, making the Old Testament more central in Matthew than in any other gospel in terms of both frequency and emphasis. That's a gospel about how the Scriptures are fulfilled in Christ. Everything that God promised in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Christ. Do you believe this? Do you love this? Does this give you great joy? Well, the second theme is this, that this is the gospel about the kingdom of God. Matthew will often call this the kingdom of heaven, but the point is that there is a king, and this king is the rightful heir to David's throne. He's the long-awaited son of David. But Jesus the king did not come initially in power and glory. Instead, he veiled his power. He concealed his glory. Instead of outward displays of brute strength, he manifested his power instead in the glory of the cross, where he established and founded his kingdom through his own suffering and bleeding and dying for sinners like you and me. Out of the great overflow of his love, and as we see him hanging and dying on the cross, we can't help but love him for it. Do you believe this? Does it fill you with joy? Do you love Jesus? The final theme we see here is that this is a gospel about the restoration of God's people. You think about the time, all of the years that these generations represent. Generation after generation as God's people were living their lives, as they were marrying, as they were bearing children, and as they were burying their dead, each passing year proved more and more clearly one unchangeable truth that God's people need their God. And this point was underscored, highlighted, italicized, bolded, put in a bigger font, and given 14 exclamation points when the people of Israel were carted off to Babylon, only to return and to see their nation and their homeland in shambles. Because even when they returned to the land, the problems weren't gone. They had just changed addresses a couple of times. Again, we read of more sin, more division, more hardness of heart. But it was here in the fullness of time when God sent forth His Son. When there was the darkness that was the darkest right before the dawn. Well, suddenly those who walked in darkness now see a great light in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Maybe you this morning are in some of your darkest days. Maybe you are desperately trying to live out your life and learning again and again painfully that you can't do it on your own, that you need someone, you need Jesus, someone beyond you and your own strength. King Jesus came into this world to save sinners at the end of their rope 
in their darkest moments. And he asks, do you trust him? Does he fill you with joy? Do you believe this? Do you submit to him? Do you love him? There is joy in the deep knowledge and love of Jesus. And Matthew wants to give us this deep knowledge so that we can know him and trust him so that as looking to him in faith, we might have our sins forgiven so that he, our mediator, might reconcile us to God. Is this your hope this morning? If not, trust in Jesus. What keeps you from believing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Matthew wants to see him and know him and trust him and find your joy in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel. This glimpse into our Lord Jesus, we are so thankful to have it, to treasure it, and we pray that as we love Jesus, that you would continue to build in our hearts a joy in him that would increase all the days of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.